We are in Romans chapter 1, as many of you know, Romans chapter 1, so you should turn your Bibles there, prepare for this morning's message. If you don't have a Bible, we'd ask that you please grab one of those blue Bibles located underneath the seats around you. If you flip that Bible open to page 939, that'll bring you to our text this morning. So, I titled this message, and inside of your bulletin, you'll see an outline that you can use to follow along. I titled this message, The Wrath of God. The Wrath of God. Let me ask you something. What is it that you think about when you hear the word wrath? Wrath. Is it something like this? Is it possibly... (laughs) I don't know what that child is so upset about, but... That is certainly wrathful in its expression. (laughs) Wrath, okay? So let me define wrath for you as one dictionary defines it. You can drop that picture now because it'll just distract him the rest of the time. (laughs) (laughs) Strong anger, strong anger, often with a desire for revenge, punishment, destruction caused by somebody in anger. These are all ways that The dictionary defines wrath, wrath. Maybe you associate the word wrath with someone you know, like your father or even your mother. I know some pretty tough moms out there. So this word could be associated with your mother or maybe even your spouse. Not my spouse, but maybe your spouse could be associated with the word wrath. Well, this may come as a shock to you, but the Bible frequently, frequently associates wrath with God, referring over and over and over again to God's wrath or the wrath of God, using those type of expressions. In fact, you will find more references in the Bible to God's wrath or anger than you will to his love and kindness. Did you know that? It's true. You will find more references to his wrath or anger than you will to his love and kindness. And though you might have heard someone say that God in the Old Testament is a God of wrath, but the God of the New Testament is a God of love. Have you ever heard anybody say that? I want you to know that that is not the right way to speak about God or the Bible. It is not the right way. For both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it is clear that God is both a God of love and without doing any harm to his perfect love, God is also described as a God of wrath a God of wrath. In fact, the word of God says this in Psalm 7, verse 11. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Every day. The Bible is saying that God is righteously angry 
every single day. Well, what is God so angry about? We're going to get to that this morning. But first, what I want to do is talk to you a little bit about this next section in Romans that we are diving into beginning now. It begins in verse 18 of chapter 1. The past several weeks, we've been looking at the first 17 verses of chapter 1. And we saw in those verses that Paul introduced himself to his Christian readers in Rome. So some of this is by way of review and to kind of catch you up to where we are now. He introduced himself this way as an apostle of Jesus Christ who had been set apart by God to proclaim the gospel of God. Not just to the Jews, remember, but also to the Gentiles. For we looked at this over the past couple of weeks because Paul was an apostle, specifically called an apostle to the Gentiles. He identifies himself that way. We saw that in Romans chapter 11, verse 13. And we also see that as we read the book of Acts. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. The gospel that Paul proclaimed was the good message or news, good news, concerning Jesus Christ. And more specifically, what Jesus had graciously done to save sinners. All sinners, all types of sinners, both Jew and Gentile. To make them right with God. To reconcile them to a holy God. And beloved, to save them from the wrath of God that is to come. Paul informed those in Rome, that he longed to come to Rome in part because he wanted to preach the gospel. He was eager to preach the gospel there, the good news there. For that city was the Gentile capital of the world. And Paul was eager to preach the gospel because he knew of the gospel's power. Okay, that's what we've been looking at over the past couple of weeks, the gospel's power to save every single person who believes. And he also knew that through faith alone in the gospel, any person, no matter how great a sinner, no matter how messed up they are, any person through faith in the gospel can be justified with God because God graciously imputes or credits to that person who believes. He credits to their account. God does this. A perfect righteousness. In fact, it is the very righteousness of God. You know what that does? It makes the sinner perfectly acceptable to God. And that's what we looked at last week, verses 16 and 17. So the gospel, beloved, truly is good news. It is good news. But guess what? It is only good news to you. And good news to me if we realize that we lack the very righteousness that God absolutely demands to be accepted by him. We lack it. There is nothing we can do to get it or to gain it on our own. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. And we must realize in order for the gospel to be good news that as sinners, you and I stand guilty and condemned before a holy God and the only thing we deserve from this holy God is his holy wrath. So, 
in order to make sure that that is understood, the Apostle Paul, beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, and going all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. This is kind of a section now here in Romans. Chapter 118 to chapter 3, verse 20. Paul will labor away through this writing to prove that the entire world, both Jew and Gentile, just to remind you, if you're not a Jew, Gentile would be us. Okay, It refers to the non-Jewish people. Paul is going to make it very clear, both Jew and Gentile are all sinners, every single one of them. And consequently, they lack the righteousness of God that he requires of them for them to be acceptable to him. And therefore, all, both Jew and Gentile, desperately need to hear and believe the gospel that Paul preached and proclaimed and described more thoroughly as in this book of Romans, the 16 chapters. Listen, beloved, if you don't think you're sick, okay? If you don't think there's anything wrong with you, then you don't think you need a cure, right? You don't think you need to seek out that cure. But if you realize just how messed up you really are, how spiritually sick you really are, how desperate you are before God because of your sin, how helpless you are to fix yourself, to make yourself right with God. When you realize that, it is then that you realize how good the gospel message is. What great news that message truly is. So, beginning in verse 18, in chapter 1, and moving all the way through verse 32, Paul begins to make his case about the sinfulness of humanity. And in this section, he is speaking primarily about the Gentiles or pagans. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. Basically, people who sinfully refused or rejected, and still do, this is still true today, the true God. They reject the true God, and instead they worship false gods, false gods of their own imagination or idols. And consequently, as we see in this section, because of that, they begin already to suffer the wrath of God for their rebellious sin. So it is the wrath of God that I want to specifically speak to you about this morning because we see that phrase, the wrath of God, in the first part of of verse 18. But I want you to hear the context that that statement is made in. I want you to hear it. And the complete context, at least for this section, is verses 18 through 32. So we're going to read a long portion of Scripture here. But we're only going to look at verse 18 this morning. Okay? So you got your Bibles? They're open. You're looking at them. Let's read it together. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Paul writes these words, For the wrath of God, here's the phrase, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world 
in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. We're just going to look at verse 18 primarily this morning. And if, again, in your outline, you'll see this note. We're going to ask and answer simply four questions. We're going to ask and answer four questions concerning the wrath of God. And we're going to do this so that we might better understand the seriousness of sin and humanity's need, their absolute need for salvation, for really the gospel, the good news concerning Jesus Christ and what he has done to save sinners. Those four questions are the following. What is the wrath of God? Second, how is the wrath of God revealed? Third, against who is the, or against what is the wrath of God revealed? And finally, one closing question here. How do we escape the wrath of God? How do we escape it? All right. You ready? Okay. A few of you are ready. Are the rest of you ready? Let's get into it. What is the wrath of God? That's the first question. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Let's look back at the text again. There we see Paul writes these words, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. First, beloved, we make a mistake if we think of God's wrath in the very same way that we think of human wrath. Did you hear what I just said? We make a mistake if we think about God's wrath in the same exact way that we think of human wrath. Maybe a, a wrathful dad, like I talked about earlier, a wrathful mom or a wrathful spouse or even a baby of wrath. 
human wrath, for the most part, is perverted and corrupted because of sin, because of our sin. Our wrath is corrupted and perverted because of our sin. What sin? Well, sin like selfishness, pride, vindictiveness, a thirst for revenge. However, God's wrath is not like that. God's wrath is righteous and perfect. It is, if you will, a holy wrath. A holy wrath. And it is holy because God himself is holy. He is holy. Meaning in part that he is absolutely perfect, morally speaking. Pure, morally speaking. He is exalted above us, set apart from us as sinners in this regard. We talked about this at the faithful men time that we had together. We talked about the holiness of God. So if you were there, you'll remember some of this. I'm actually going to use one of your quotes, Thomas. I'm going to steal it from you because it was very good. Regarding the holiness of God. The psalmist says in Psalm 5-4, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. You know, I wish we could say that. I wish we could say, I could say to someone, for you are not a person who delights in wickedness, right? I mean, this should be true for Christians as well. You're not a person who delights in wickedness and you don't allow evil to dwell with you. You You don't have any company with evil. You hate wickedness. Well, for God, that is absolutely true. We read this in 1 John when we looked at that study many, many months ago where John tells us, the Apostle John tells us in 1 John 1, 5 that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And he's not talking about the lights that we have that allow us to see in the room, but when we speak of, when you see light in the Bible, not only does it talk about truth, but it talks about his moral perfection. God, you are morally perfect and there is not a tint of imperfection, morally speaking, in you. Not at all. No darkness. God is holy. In regard to the holiness of God, one writer says this, God is morally pure, infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably so. With regard to his character, his thought, and his actions, there is not the slightest taint of evil desire, impure motive, or unholy inclination about him. Not any unholy tendency about God. He doesn't lean that way, not even a bit. God is holy. As a consequence, beloved, of God's holiness, his his moral perfection, God rightly cannot condone Sin. He cannot. He cannot tolerate sin. We, sadly, not only tolerate sin, but we even indulge in sin. Is that not true? Huh? Sadly. But God cannot and will not. And in fact, 
He is angered by it every single day and determined to punish it. Now back to our our first passage that we talked about this morning in, in Psalm 711. Do you know why God, the righteous judge, is, is angry every day, feels indignation every day? It is because of humanity's sin. It is because of their wickedness. He hates it. He is repulsed by it. Because, listen to me, any and every sin is an affront or an insult to him, to who he is. It's an attack, if you will, on his very character. Because of who God is, he must and does react in revulsion against sin. He's disgusted by it. That's how he responds to it. Some other Bible scholars have defined God's wrath this way. You might find this helpful. I found it helpful for me. One writer says this, the wrath of God is his holy aversion. Aversion is a word that just means very strong dislike. Bordering on, or you could even say hate. The wrath of God is his holy aversion to all that is evil. And his purpose is to destroy it. One writer says this, God's wrath is his settled indignation. In other words, God's wrath is is not God suddenly blowing his gasket or losing his temper because he had a bad day or he's just had enough of you or me. See, that's kind of our wrath, right? It kind of all of a sudden we just blow up. We've had enough or we had bad traffic or someone cuts us off on the freeway. That's our wrath. And we think, of course, we own the whole freeway, so we get very angry about that. And then we cut them off, you know, these kind of things. Or we just had enough with our kids. We just had enough of them being rebellious and foolish, and so we blow up. And that, that's the kind of wrath we, we produce, unrighteous wrath. God's wrath is not that way. It's a settled indignation. It is fully established, and it is continual. It is a righteous anger that exists and always exists towards sin and always will. One writer says this, God's wrath is the holy, here's that word again, revulsion, disgust of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. You understand that? Sin is a contradiction of his holiness and God's wrath is his response, his, his revulsion against that that contradicts who he is. God cannot be neutral or apathetic about sin, beloved. On the contrary, one writer says this, his wrath is his holy hostility to evil or sin, his refusal to condone it or to come to terms with it, his just judgment upon it. That is God's wrath. Finally, last. One writer says this. I like this. As long as God is God, 
He cannot behold with indifference that his creation is destroyed and his holy will trodden underfoot, stamped down, beaten to the ground. He can't just stand by with indifference to that. Therefore, he meets sin with his mighty and annihilating reaction. His wrath. His wrath. I don't remember singing about wrath this morning. Do you? We sing about God's love, his mercy, his grace, but we don't often speak about God's wrath. And that's, that's a mistake because the Bible speaks about it regularly. If God is not terribly angry with sin, beloved, if he is not, then we could rightly question whether God is truly righteous. Maybe he's not as righteous as I thought. But it is the very existence of his holy wrath, his anger against sin, that tells me he is a perfectly and completely righteous God. Evil cannot dwell with him. In him is no darkness, only light. So that answers the first question. Just generally speaking, what is the wrath of God? Let's look at the second question. Now, how is the wrath of God revealed? How is it revealed? How, how is God's anger or wrath towards sin made known to us? How do we know about it? Look back at the text, Romans 18. Paul writes, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So we're looking at that phrase, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Well, the answer to the question, how is the wrath of God revealed as it relates to this verse, does not lie in this verse. But in other words, I can't find the answer to the question I just asked in verse 18. But it is in the immediate context of this verse which is verses 18 through 32, okay? So that's why I read that whole section for you, because I, I can't answer this question without knowing the whole context. Now, we're going to look at all of those verses in the coming weeks, and, and I, we'll go through them in detail, but I want to show you something now that you can begin to think about in your mind before we get there. Paul says here in verse 18 that the wrath of God is revealed or made known. Revealed or made known. Revealed is in the present tense in the original Greek. And I've told you this before. It simply means that this is something that is ongoing. God's wrath against sin was being revealed even at the time that Paul wrote this letter to the Romans. So it's not just a past event, but something that was taking place even then. God's wrath being revealed. So how is the wrath of God being revealed or made known to us, to humanity. This is where it gets interesting for us and where it might shed some light on your mind or help you understand why things are the way they are even today in our society and culture. Paul says in this section, Romans 1, 18 through 32, and I'm just going to kind of bring these thoughts together and then kind of show you what's going on. He says, because of the Gentiles' refusal to acknowledge the truth about God, their refusal to acknowledge the truth about God, that he has made known to them. And we're going to look at all of these ideas in detail in the weeks to come. 
They refuse the knowledge that God has made known to them about himself because also of the refusal to honor him and give him thanks because they exchange the truth about God for a lie and turn to idolatry. And idolatry, beloved, is the worship of anything that is not the true God. But you worship it like it is. Because of that, Paul says three times in this section, Romans 1, 18 to 32, he says three times that God gave them up to their sin. Or as another translation says it, gave them over to their sin. Let's look at them quickly. I'll show you. The first one is in Romans 1.24. Because they have rejected me, because they have spurned me, because they have rejected the knowledge that I have given them about myself, because they refuse to honor me, refuse to give me thanks, because they instead worship idols. They worship the creation instead of the creator. I am giving them over. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. The second time it shows up is in Romans 1.26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. The third time it shows up is in Romans 1.28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now, beloved, we're going to examine every single one of those passages in more detail, as I've already told you, in the weeks to come. But here is the basic idea of what Paul is communicating. God's wrath is being revealed. He refers to this in verse 18. It is being revealed in the judgment of the Gentiles' willful and deliberate sin. A judgment that consists of God's abandonment. God's abandonment or withdrawing himself from them. To say it another way, the wrath of God was revealed by God letting rebellious men and women go their own sinful ways. Letting them go. A way that if not repented of, would lead to their destruction and their ultimate ruin. This is probably a bad illustration, but I'm going to use it because we would never want to do this. But it's like a, it's like a child on your arm who you're holding him very tight as you cross the street, and he's flipping out. He wants to run away. He wants to run into the street. Now, you know the dangers of running into the street. There's crossing cars and all this. This kid doesn't know any better, but he won't listen to his father. He's just screaming and screaming, and at some point, you say, fine. You understand? I said it's a terrible illustration because don't ever do that (laughs) because you know what will happen to your child, right? Certain ruin and destruction as that foolish, rebellious child runs into the street. 
Dad's telling the child, you run into the street, you're likely to get hit. I don't care. Okay. Bye. See, you would never do that, right? But God is holy. Perfectly holy. And our sin is way grosser even than this little child who really doesn't know any better. We know better and do it anyway. We know the truth of God and we reject him anyway. That's what Paul is saying. One writer says this, God abandons stubborn sinners to their willful self-centeredness and the resulting process of moral and spiritual degeneration is to be understood as a judicial act of God. In other words, a judgment of God. That this is the revelation of God's wrath from heaven. This is not new. This is not just for the Gentiles. We see this same thing going on even among the Jewish people. God's chosen people. We see a reference to this in Psalm 81, verses 11 through 12. Where there, we're told, but my people... God is talking, but my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Beloved, just in case you don't know, that is the last thing we want God to do. That is the last thing we want him to do, to give us over to our own foolish and stubborn and sinful ways because it is sure to lead to ruin and destruction. But that is exactly what God has done and is doing. According to Romans 1, 18 through 32. God cannot, beloved, tolerate sin. And as a result, His wrath is being poured out against sin from heaven. That's what's happening. That explains and gives you an understanding of the spiritual degeneration, the moral decline that we are watching unfold before our very eyes. You want to continue to reject me? Is that what you want to do? You want to continue to not honor me, not give me things. You want to worship idols? You want to worship everything under the sun except the one who made the sun? I'll give you over as a form of my judgment. And that leads to a chaos, spiritually speaking. Sin getting worse and worse in our culture, in our society, among our people. But beloved... As bad as that is, that is not as bad as it will be concerning the wrath of God. In fact, that's really just a preview, a small preview of the wrath of God. God's full outpouring of his wrath against sin, against rebellious sinners, against this fallen world is yet to come. It's yet to come. We're still awaiting it. The world is. The lost world, the sinful world, the world that does not know Christ, the world that refuses to believe the gospel. They're awaiting it. I'm not awaiting it. They are awaiting it. It is still to come. 
And you can just, we won't look at anything this morning, but just crack open the book of Revelation. Crack it open. Just start reading that book. That is a book that describes events that are scheduled on God's calendar to occur in the future. Okay? That, if you, you think about a calendar and you lay out your calendar for the year, that's God's calendar. And these are events that have not yet taken place, but they will. And they describe the wrath of God in detail. Paul was very aware of that wrath. He was very aware of this future wrath that is to come. He makes reference to it in Romans 2, 5, the same book, where he said to those who were hard-hearted and repentant, those or unrepentant, those who refused to believe the gospel, refused to trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior, as the one that could make them right with God, they refused. This is what Paul said to them. You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. It's a future day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That's what you're doing. You want to continue to be stubborn and rebellious? You want to continue to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ? Spurn it? Refuse it? Think you can get to God through your own righteousness? You know what you're doing? You are storing up for yourself the wrath of God that will be revealed in that day of his judgment this statement beloved should strike terror into the heart of any person who has rejected the gospel any person who has yet to receive the gospel by faith to believe the truths of the gospel it should terrify them god has a massive massively large and deep dam okay that's how i want you to think of it a massively bigger than you can imagine large and deep dam that he is filling up with his wrath and on the day of his wrath when it will finally and fully be revealed he is going to open up the gates of that dam and he will let it all pour out on all the sinners who refused the gospel, rejected the gospel, refused to believe and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior. And that wrath will be poured out on them because of their sin. Because they didn't, they didn't accept Jesus as the sacrifice for their sin. They didn't accept Jesus as the one who could make them right with God. And so they will stand before God and answer to Him for every single one of their sins. And he has been building up his wrath. In anticipation of that very day. Because he is holy. And he cannot tolerate sin. He cannot look the other way. He must judge it. That brings me to the third point. Against what is the wrath of God revealed? We've already mentioned it. But let's look back at the text. Let's look at this. Let's see what Paul says. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So what is the wrath of God being revealed against? In this text, Paul is saying God's wrath is revealed against, you can see it, all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And you could understand 
those terms as both representing sin or rebellion to God. Sin or rebellion to God, which is the same idea. The first, ungodliness, that term, that phrase, it points to an utter lack of reverence for God. An utter lack, complete lack of any reverence for God, resulting ultimately in rebellion to God, ungodliness. And the second term, unrighteousness, it points to a, a lack of reverence for what God declares to be righteous or just. And you know what that results in? Wickedness. Sin and more sin. Evil. So you could take those two terms and put them together and they basically describe the utter sinfulness of humanity. The utter sinfulness of humanity. But listen to me. There is an additional statement that Paul makes about what the wrath of God is being revealed against. He doesn't just say ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It is not just against that, but against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So what is what is Paul talking about there? Well, the word truth in the context, that word truth there, it's primarily a reference to the truth about God. If you read verses 19 through 21 and you look at verse 25, you'll see Paul's talking about Just basically the general idea about the truth about God. They suppress the truth about God. We'll look at that in detail next week. Paul's telling us in verses 19 through 20 that that basically God has revealed to all people, all people, through his creation, what he has made, he has revealed to them a limited but true knowledge about himself. Okay? A knowledge concerning his eternal power and his divine nature. He has revealed that to all people. Now listen, remember, this book is talking about Jews and Gentiles and he's making comparisons. And so we know the Jewish people had more knowledge about God than just that. More knowledge than just what comes from God's creation. They had more knowledge because God chose them to be his special people. God revealed himself in a a more intense way to the nation of Israel. He 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 dwelt with them. He walked with them. He gave them his holy law. He gave them his prophets, priests. So they had that knowledge. But God did not leave the rest of the world without a knowledge about himself. That's what Paul is saying. He did not do that. He made himself known to a certain degree and has made himself known to a certain degree to all humanity. But you know what? They naturally reject God's revelation and they refuse to believe. They refuse to believe what God has revealed to them. They suppress the truth. Or to say it another way, they they hold it down, beloved. They hold it down. They stomp on it. That is the truth about God. They prevent it from having any further influence in their lives. That's what we do. That's what sinners separated from God, not believing in the gospel, do. God reveals the truth about himself. And they suppress that truth. They 
They try to pretend it doesn't exist. They hold it down. They reject it. They don't say yes to the truth. Give me more truth. They say, I don't want that truth. I want none of it. I'll pretend it even doesn't exist. And then they don't stop there. But in a sense, they slap the very face of God by rejecting him and worshiping that which is not God. Idols, idolatry, they enter into idolatry. And we see that in verse 23 and 25. Do you understand? Do you understand why God is so angry? Here I've given you truth about myself. I have created you to worship me. You reject because of your sin the very truth that I give you. And you don't stop there. But you go one step further and you worship that which is not God. The very creation that I've made. Rejecting me as creator even. It is against this willful human rebellion that God's wrath is being revealed, beloved. It is against that. And one day in the future, his wrath will be fully poured out when he opens the gates to his dam of wrath. What will become very clear to us as we move through this next section of Romans this 118 to three, chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. This is what Paul is going to make clear to us. That no human being who has ever lived, no human being or will live, no human being is truly innocent or right with God. Not a one. Not a one. For all have sinned against God. Every single one. Both Gentile and Jew. Those who had Increased revelation, special revelation from God, and those had a limited revelation in both cases, they both have sinned against God. They both have spurned God in different ways. And consequently, both Jew and Gentile, every single human being, deserve God's wrath. That's the message of Romans 1.18 through 3.20. Every single one. I do. You do. Deserve the wrath of God. So after a message like that, I mean, is that why, you know, you thought, I'm going to come here and I want to be lifted up and motivated, right? I hope you didn't think that. I hope you just came to hear the word of God and let it do what it's going to do, right? But if you came here to be lifted up and motivated, wow, the wrath of God is just not the message to really do that. It's, you know, it almost like just puts you down, doesn't it? Doesn't it make you feel down, the wrath of God? So I thought we couldn't talk about the wrath of God and, and not close with this last question. How, number four, in your outline, how do we escape the wrath of God? How do we escape it? You know, I was thinking about this. We tend to tell people, I've heard people do this, we tend to tell them, hey, you know, when we're talking to people, God loves you. He loves you. And that is true. We know he loves us because we've seen his love displayed in what he did through his son, Jesus Christ, right? We talk about that. The uh, problem with that is we typically never get around to talking about the wrath of God that is upon them because they have, they at that point have not accepted the gospel. We don't get around to that. And here's the problem when just telling people, we kind of tell them half the message. God loves you. God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, it just so happens that that plan happens to be hell if you reject the gospel. We need to probably tell them the other part. 
And the reason, the reason people get confused, I think, is when, I just, when I'm just spewing about God's love, God's love, well, if he loves me, then he's going to be cool with me in the end. He'll be cool with me because I'm, you know, I've done the best I can and I'm, I'm doing, you know, I'm, I'm not a really wretched sinner. And if God truly loves me like you're talking about, he's just going to let it go, man. He's going to look the other way. And the reason we do that is we hear love and we think of like the love of our mom, right? I mean, mom, she'll take you in even like if you're an axe murderer, man, you know what I mean? Almost to that degree, it's like, oh, come on, baby, it's okay. Put the axe down. I don't know why you did. You know I still love you and I accept you here. They start to think that way. They think that way about God. That's not the right way to think about God. God's love is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. It is through Jesus Christ only that we truly can experience the saving love of God. Outside of Christ, the only thing that person has to look forward to is the wrath of God against their sin. You understand what I'm saying? So when Hebrews says, when the writer of Hebrews in 10 verse 31 says, for it is a terrifying thing, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What is he talking about? I thought God was love. How can it be terrifying to fall into the hands of such a loving God? It is terrifying, beloved, because in that section he's talking about those who reject the gospel. You want to spurn the gospel? You want to resist it and reject it? You want to trample over the grace of God through Jesus Christ? Let me tell you something. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. He will crush you. He must, because he is holy. And he is filled with wrath against sin. Now back to the question. How do we escape the wrath of God? Well, if the bottom line is that we all deserve the wrath of God. And we do. We do. Then is there any way, basically, to not get what we deserve? Is there any way to not get what we deserve? And the Bible is very clear. The answer is a big, fat, bold yes. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. It's a yes. This is where the glory of the gospel, the good news of the gospel, shouts forth as loud as it can possibly be. Against the backdrop of God's wrath, knowing we all deserve God's wrath, all of us have sinned, and God is angry and he's angry every day to know that you and I can escape that wrath But how? Through the gospel. And I want to show you just one passage. This is so awesome. It's in Romans. You're familiar with it. But here we see in these texts the love of God and the wrath of God right next to each other. Just like it is throughout the Bible. Let me show it to you. Romans 5, verse 6. Paul says this. He's speaking to the Christians in Rome. For while we were still weak or helpless... We couldn't do anything. We couldn't make ourselves right with God. At that time, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's, uh, that's me. He died for the ungodly. Paul says, for one will scarcely die for a, a righteous person, uh, though perhaps... Uh, For a good person, someone might even dare, dare even to die. 
But we're neither of those things. At this point in Romans, he's already made it clear. There are none righteous, no, not one. We all stand condemned before God outside of Christ without the gospel. And he says in verse 8, But God, he shows his love for us. There it is, right? We love that. We love God's love. And we should. It's the greatest love ever. It's a perfect love, a divine love, a love I I can't even get my, my mind around, really, my arms around. It's too big. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, ruined sinners, condemned before God, unrighteous, ungodly, while we were still that, Christ died for us. He's speaking to Christians. Now get this. Verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. I've talked to you about this before. Blood is not talking about his fluid. Blood is a reference to his death. He surrendered his blood means he surrendered his life. He died. Justified. We have been made right with God. We have been made right with God. We who could never make ourselves right with God have been made right with God. How? Through the death of Jesus Christ. Through his blood spilt on the sinner's behalf. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Get this. Much more shall we be saved by him from the what? From the what? Wrath of God. You see that in the same section here. The love of God in Christ and the wrath of God for those who are outside of Christ. And every Christian or every person, I would say, every person who by faith will believe the gospel, will believe that they are sinners condemned before God. They are not okay with God. They are not doing pretty good with God. They are guilty before God. They are guilty. Every sinner is guilty before God. They stand condemned before God. They are under God's wrath according to John chapter 3. They live under it currently. And they are awaiting the complete experience of that very wrath against their sins. But if they believe that Christ Jesus, if they simply believe the truth of the gospel, the realities of the gospel... Not a fairy tale, not something we want to be true, but it's not. Something that is true. That Jesus Christ laid down his life on that cross for sins and took upon himself, beloved. Get this. Connect it all together. He took upon himself his father's wrath. God's wrath. He took it upon himself for that sin. And he did that so that the sinner who believes in him would never, ever have to take it. Do you understand that? They would never have to experience it. They, by faith, escape the wrath of God that is to come against sin. You see that? If you're here this morning, well, you're all here. I've said that many times, and I think that's a silly statement. Those of you that are here and have not placed your faith in the gospel, you have not believed some of the things that I have just said, 
Let me be as clear as I can with you. You right now remain under the very wrath of God. And you are awaiting the full experience of that wrath. Because you have not placed your faith in the Savior. You see? We talk about the Savior, right? Savior. Think about the word. He saves us. From what? From what? From the very wrath of God that is against us. That's what it means when we say he's a savior. We are destined for hell, the full experience of God's eternal wrath against sin. And he steps in and saves all who will believe in what he accomplished on the cross. But you must believe. You must trust. Stop trusting in yourself. Stop stop trusting in your, your, quote, righteousness, what you can do, your religion, any of those things. But fully throw yourself upon the mercy of God that is in the cross of Jesus Christ and believe that he alone saves you and cry out to him, Lord, I believe for all who will call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. Do that. Do that even now as I go into prayer and close out our time. Do that. And right now for you, you will be transferred out from the awaiting a, an existence of absolute misery and punishment, just judgment. You will be taken out of that and you'll be placed into a different category, justified with God, declared right with God, forgiven of every sin, past, present and future. And all you will be awaiting is an eternal glory with God. And you will never experience the wrath of God. For all those who believe cannot possibly ever come under condemnation because Christ has paid the price for your sin. If you believe. You can do that right now, beloved. You can do it right now. In your mind, in your heart, cry out to him. Cry out to him to save you and believe the truths of the gospel. I pray you would do that. Let's close in prayer. Father God, first I, I got to praise you, Father. I got to praise you because I have believed the gospel. I know many here have believed. They put their trust in it completely and fully. They're not trusting in themselves, in their own righteousness, and in, in their works, and their merit. They know that's all garbage before you. They know they're guilty. I know I'm guilty. But they have trusted in Jesus Christ who has set us free free from the consequences of our sin and the power of our sin and one day from the presence of it even, Father. Free, Father. You have made us free through Jesus Christ, through faith in Him, what He did alone to rescue sinners. And Father, so we rejoice this morning. For us who have heard about the wrath of God, we can hear it, but we don't have to be terrified by it. For when I fall into your hands, I'll fall into the hands of my Father who loves me and sent his Son to die for me. That's the hands I will fall into. And so we rejoice. We rejoice, we celebrate, we bow down and worship you, Father. For you truly have loved us. And we know that love through Jesus Christ. But Father, I also pray for those, and I know... I am, I, am, I am certain that I'm sure there are some here who have yet to place their faith, their trust, their hope in the gospel to believe these things. Maybe they've been suppressing these things, pushing them down, not wanting to think about them. But Father, here it is again. So Lord, I pray that you would convict them, that your spirit would sovereignly work 
to take the mask off their face, to remove the blinders from their eyes, to pull the plugs out of their ears, and to take that stony, rebellious heart and to crash it, to break it up, to give them a heart that would respond to you in faith, believing as a child, just as a simple child, childlike faith, believing the truth of the gospel, that they are dead in their trespasses and sins, and if it were not for Christ, they're only... Their only destiny would be to experience your wrath. That's all they have to look forward to. But because of Christ, they can escape the certain and coming wrath of God. Father, would you work in that way in this room even now? And Father, not only here, but there are many that we we know, friends and family and co-workers, who still refuse and reject the gospel. Father, we pray, we plead with you, sovereignly work through your spirit and your word and through our testimony as we share with them how to escape the wrath of God. Maybe we stop telling them about the love for a second and tell them the other part too, about your wrath against their sin about your wrath against their sin. And Father, if they don't receive your love, if they don't accept it through Christ, then all they have left is your wrath. They'll never know your love, not your saving love, Father. Help us to testify to the truth, to the complete truth as your word has revealed it to us. And Father, as we do that, would you work through that very word to bring them to yourself, to draw them unto yourself, to break all their stubbornness and their foolish pride, that they would bow their hearts before you and call out upon Christ in faith to save them. And Father, we know according to your word that that is exactly what you will do for those who will do that. Lord, save sinners. We thank you for saving us as sinners. And Father, the desire of our heart is to see you continue to do that until you come again, Father, until all things are wrapped up and brought together to an end. Father, until that day, we pray, we plead, continue to do your saving work among us, and I pray even now you do it right here in this room, right now. In Jesus' name.